0: Are you willing to examine the traditions and doctrines that you trust in for your eternal salvation? Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I am Don Britton and I will be your host. I will be comparing the modern traditions and doctrines of American Christianity with what the scriptures actually say. You may be shocked to find out that much of what is commonly believed in American Christianity today is nothing more than myths handed down to us by men. So please join me now with an open mind. Hello and welcome back to another Great Deception podcast. My name is Don Britton and I want to talk to you today about what true confession is versus uh, maybe a type of confession that's not so true. In in James chapter 5 verse 16, James wrote this, Therefore confess your sins to one another... And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So what does it mean to confess your sins? That's really the question here. I'm going to say there are two kinds of confessions. There's really only one kind of true confession, and we'll call the other kind just an admission. In the Corinthian church, there was a man committing adultery with his father's wife. Here's what Paul wrote about that. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetors and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an adulterer or, an, or a reviler or a drunkard, or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges. So Paul said, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So Paul instructed the Corinthian church to remove the adulterer from the church. So why would he do that? Why would he say that? Well, in verse 5 of the same chapter, Paul said, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? First, the reason here for Paul to have the church remove the wicked man was so that his spirit could be saved. That was the first reason. How, so how's his spirit going to be saved if he's a wicked man? We know that Paul already and earlier in the book of First Corinthians in chapter 6, Paul had stated that no immoral person could inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, he can't be saved in the end if he's immoral. But you see, church discipline is, is for the hope of causing someone to come to repentance. You see, in this case, to remove the wicked man from the church would be to make him ashamed of himself, hopefully, even possibly bring him to account for his sins, making him face what, what he's done. Maybe that would cause him to be broken and, and sorry for what he'd done and then to possibly repent so that he could be saved. So that was Paul's first reason to, to have this man removed was, was so that there'd be some hope of him being saved. You see, as long as the church keeps a blind eye to sin, which is what's going on all over the country today, a person's never going to repent. He's never going to be convicted of his sin. He's never going to be confronted about his sin. He's never going to be ashamed of his sin because you know he's just going to keep right on as long as everybody's okay with it, as long as the church is okay with it, as long as the pastor's okay with it. Why would he not just keep on sinning? And he's going to keep on sinning on his way to hell. But nobody's going to love him enough to do anything about it. So this is the present condition of of the church in America today. This is exactly what's going on today. Members all over the country in every denomination and even the pastors, many of them, over 50% of them, are in pornography, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and just about any other kind of sin you can think of. So tell me, what pastor is addressing porn or adultery or fornication or homosexuality in the church today? The surveys that were recently done by various different uh, ministries have come up to show that 78% of church-going men are in pornography. And along with that, many of them are committing adultery. And 33% of church-going women are in pornography as well. And many of them are committing adultery in the church. And what's even worse is that over 50% of America's pastors of all denominations are also in pornography. And many of them are and have been committing sexual acts with their members of their own members of their own church, sometimes even with children. So this is how the church is so corrupted today. And when Paul said a little leaven leavens a whole lump, leavens the whole bunch, so to speak. This is not just a little leaven. This is a lot of leaven, and it's leavened the whole church. The whole church is totally ineffective today, has no moral authority anymore because of this wickedness. So anyway, let's go down to the second chapter of Corinthians now, and let's see what happened after Paul had rebuked the church in the first letter to the Corinthians. Let's see what happened when the Corinthian church actually repented. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. He says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And verse 11, he says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. In other words, they repented, and they were forgiven, and they dealt with this situation, and they got their hearts right before God. So, what Paul is saying here is there's two kinds of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow and there's a godly sorrow. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul wrote this, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So there's conviction of the heart in true godly sorrow just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And Jesus explained the same thing about the conviction of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, when he explained it this way. He says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you and he that is the holy spirit when he comes will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment so what we have here is we have these two kinds of sorrow we have a worldly sorrow that comes from when a that comes forth when a person is caught in their sin in other words they're caught they're exposed for their sin by someone else or or somehow it came to light And then they feel sorry about it. Oh, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And then they start apologizing for it. Well, the church is full of apologies. I'm going to tell you something. God is not looking for an apology. There's nowhere in the Bible that God asked for an apology. There was nowhere that anyone made an apology and were forgiven. It's about repentance from sin. It's about being broken and convicted and ashamed of what you've done. And it going deep to the heart. And then you and your heart is torn over it, and you turn from it, and you stop doing it, and you repent. That's when you have a godly sorrow. But a worldly sorrow is not like that. A worldly sorrow is just, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. I'm wrong. You're right. I I committed the sin. And so the church is just full of apologies. So, what the worldly sorrow does as well, rather than a true confession that leads to to a repentance without regret that leads to salvation, a worldly sorrow only produces an admission of wrongdoing because someone else exposed it. So here we go. We admit it, but we didn't confess it. See, there's a difference between just admitting something and confessing it according to the will of God. And this is so true with the legal system we have today. And, you know, I've, I've watched it as well. Men get caught breaking the law. And they're questioned by the police and the police bring forth evidence and show them, say, look, this is what you did. We've got your own, uh, we've got you on video, uh, the camera outside the store that you robbed or whatever. And so they break down and they admit guilt after being exposed. And when they go to jail, then they're sorry for what they did because I mean, it's miserable being in jail and they have this worldly sorrow on them for their sins and for their crimes. And then they go before the parole board and they promise all kinds of things. Oh, I found God in jail. And oh, I've had a change of heart. I'd never do this again. And I'm so sorry. But then here's what happens. It happens in a high percentage. Almost all of these criminals that get caught, go to jail, go before the parole board, and then they're let loose. They all get out, pretty much all of them. And they do the same thing all over again. Because you see... They only admitted to their crimes, but they were never convicted by the Holy Spirit in their heart to bring them to true confession and to true repentance and to a true heart change. Now, the problem that I'm describing with the world and its conviction of criminals and so forth, it's the same thing in the church today. This pattern is also true for false Christians. They think that when they admit that they've sinned and they apologize for their sin, that they think that's true confession and repentance. But But words are not repentance. Repentance is a changed life. It's a new heart. It's a new direction. It's leaving your old sin behind and going and turning towards God. So admission of sin and conviction of sin are not the same thing. A godly sorrow comes when a person is convicted of sin in their heart by the Holy Spirit and they are humbled and they are grieved and they are broken over their sin and they will do anything they can to get free from their sin and to make it right with whomever they've harmed. This kind of godly sorrow leads to a repentance without regret because it leads to salvation. This repentance will accept any instruction or correction or even rebuke or consequences because of its sin. And, it will, and this kind of repentance will, this kind of uh, a confession and repentance will accept all of this with humility and with thankfulness, realizing that he or she deserves whatever they get. The same is true in the legal system, really. Someone who is convicted in his heart who committed a crime and is truly repentant for breaking the law will peacefully accept his prison sentence because he knows he deserves it and is willing to serve his time. And when he gets out, he will never break the law again. That's true. That's a true heart change. And it does happen sometimes with a few. I used to go to the prisons myself. I used to teach and preach in the prisons and try to help those guys. And when I would go, you know, they would, I would go and speak and, um, uh, you know, half the guys in the, in the room would come up to be saved. I'd go back a month later and the same guys would get saved again. And somebody else would go and preach and they'd get saved again because they all felt guilty, of course, because they'd done wrong. And they all wanted some relief from their, their guilt. I guess they wanted to feel better about themselves. And, and, and well, even some of the guys seemed so sincere That when they got out of prison, I even in my business took some of them in and gave them jobs. I helped them get back with their spouses. I helped them put their families back together sometimes. I helped them with their finances. I helped them find a place to live. And you know what happened to every single one of them? I mean, every one of them went back to their old crimes eventually. Not one of them ever really changed. So I was just amazed by that. I see the same thing in the church today. You see, if there's not a heart change, there's no repentance. Even if someone starts behaving better outwardly, you know, by modifying their behavior, you know, people can modify their behavior. They can act differently for a while. You can't just look at the outside of someone's actions, though. You've really got to watch closely for the fruit that comes from their heart. False Christians make this kind of a statement a lot of times. They say, oh, no one is perfect, and, of course, that's true that no one's perfect. So they make excuses for their sin by saying that they're not perfect. I hear this a lot. False Christians also call their sins a mistake. They say that since they are not perfect, they just made a mistake. When they're, and when they sinned willfully and knowingly, and they knew what they were doing was wrong, even though they knew it was wrong, they did it anyway, and they just call that a mistake. Well, I thought, well, you know, I want to see what the Bible says about mistakes. So I looked up the word mistake in the Bible. I used my concordance and I guess, guess what I found. The word mistake only appears two times in the whole Bible in the New American Standard. It's the first time it appears was that time when Joseph's brothers came to Egypt and they got the grain and they were leaving in the, the bags of grain that were carrying them away. And Joseph had a cup a gold cup put in one of the bags and then, you know, you know the story. And then when they opened the bag and he sent a messenger to check on the bag, there the cup was. And the, and the brother said, oh, that must have been a mistake. So the second time was in Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse four. And he says, when you make a promise to God, do not fail to keep it. For he does not take, the, he takes no delight in fools. Keep your promise to God. It is better that you should not promise than that you should promise and not keep it. Do not let your words cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your words and destroy what you have done? So don't tell a messenger, don't tell someone who's coming to speak to you about your sin, don't say, oh, I just made a mistake when you did something intentionally and knowingly that was wrong. Yes, it is true that Christians can stumble and make a mistake and sin. Yes, this is true. This is something that that happens, though, that was not intentional. It's unintentional. The scripture does talk about unintentional sin. It's something that may come up quickly, and it happens unintentionally. It can happen. For an example, anyone can have a moment of lust, Or they can entertain uh, evil thought for a short while. Or they can have uh, an attack of jealousy. Or they can have a quick moment of anger. Or they can have a a short spell of self-pity. Or even a moment of impatience. Or get into an argument. Or they could get caught up in some gossip and so forth. But it's not something that they do by practice. It's not who they really are. It's not what they do all the time, every day, ongoing. So that's that's a call to Stumble. I've, I've described it like this before. Anyone can slip and fall in a mud puddle. But it's a completely different thing when you actually intentionally dive into the mud puddle. See, the difference is in one is that it was unintentional and with the other, it was knowingly and with intention. So, intentional sin is not a mistake. It is rebellion to God and it comes from an evil heart. The one who practices intentional sin is not of God for an example no one commits adultery by mistake no one watches porn by mistake no one watches horror violent or impure wicked movies by mistake no one continually gets angry over and over by mistake no one steals by mistake no one tells lies by mistake no one obsesses over video games or sports or, or any type of worldly entertainment by mistake. No one continues to sin ongoing the same way over and over again by mistake. In Hebrews ten twenty six, it explains this. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, See, he was sanctified by the blood of the covenant means he was saved at some point and now has insulted the spirit of grace. Of course, we know what grace is. Grace is grace has appeared, Titus you know, 2.11 uh, says that grace has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny all worldly desires and, and to live godly, sensibly, and righteously in this present age. So grace is telling us not to sin. So when someone goes on willfully sinning, He has insulted the spirit of grace and he's trampled underfoot the blood of Jesus. That's a pretty serious matter. And in verse 30 goes on to say, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And he goes on to say, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So a mistake is when we sin by accident and not by practice willful sin is when we sin intentionally and it is our practice and in first john 3 he says this john the writer said this little children let no one deceive you the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous the one who practices sin is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning the son of god appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot, that is, practice sin. He cannot sin by practice because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So there we go. We have a church today that is full of people practicing sin. This plainly says they are of the devil. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how well-dressed they are. I don't care how successful they are. I don't care how articulate they are. They are of the devil. I don't care if it's your pastor. He's of the devil. That's what it says. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus was saying this, and he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That is his soul. So, I'm asking you this, you who is listening to this message. Are your confessions true confessions leading to repentance without regret? Or are you just making admissions to your sins and apologies or with worthless excuses for your sins? Like saying, Oh, I'm not perfect, or we're just all sinners saved by grace, or I sin every day, thank God for grace. You know, those are just worthless excuses. If you study the Bible, you'll find that grace does not cover up your sin but actually instructs you not to sin. The only way grace can save you is if you obey it. If you obey it, you won't practice sin. But grace will not excuse your sin or cover it up. You see, one way, one type of confession leads to salvation and through a repentance without regret. The other type of confession or admission will only lead you to hell. So which is it? Think about it. I hope you really do. Thank you for listening to The Great Deception Podcast. You may visit my website at www.christianmyths.org for more information for my blog and for my email address. You can also get my book, The Great Deception of American Christianity Without Christ, on Amazon or on my website. Also on my website, you may download two free chapters of my book, I hope you join me next week as we continue to examine The Great Deception.